This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Gym Day Podcast is brought to you by Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Now batting number one in our hearts. At least he'd like to think so. It's the Jim Day Podcast. All right, all right, all right. Welcome into the Jim Day Podcast. We're presented by Kroger. Thanks so much for checking us out. However you are listening, wherever, whenever, thank you so much as we continue to try to grow this podcast. And we have another best of edition today. And this is the Reds Hall of Fame best of. And I was humbled that these four guys would, one, know my name, two, would actually join me for a sit-down conversation on podcast. Does it get any bigger than Joe Morgan? Mr. Perfect, Tom Browning. Jim Maloney. No one tells a story better than Jim Maloney and our good old friend Tommy Helms. So... We will look back and uh, have some fun. All four of these guys in the Reds Hall of Fame. And, of course, Joe Morgan also in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Hope you enjoy it. We will kick it off. If you've ever been around this guy, uh, you can't be around him without a few laughs. There's no doubt about that. And we're going back in time here. The great Tommy Helms joining us today. How are we doing, Tommy? What an introduction. I don't know what to say now. Very nice to be here. You know, obviously, Sparky Anderson gets uh, uh, most of the credit for the Big Red Machine, but really the the foundation of the Big Red Machine happened in the late 60s, which you were a part of, and Dave Bristol was the manager. What was it like playing for Dave Bristol? Who most recently got his due going into the Reds Hall of Fame? And well-deserved. Yeah. yeah I think well-deserved. Uh, we, we had a team, and I think it started about 1968. Mm-hmm. That's when we had gotten Alex Johnson over, and we had, uh, uh, I think we had Bobby Tolan. Maybe Bobby Tolan was already there. But we had a team that it was just special. When we was playing, before we moved over to Riverfront, it would have been a 70. Would have, I don't know how many home runs we'd have hit if we hadn't moved over Riverfront at uh, the All-Star break. Yeah. Well, nineteen seventy, the, the beginning of 1970, yeah. even I asked Pete, I said, what's the best team you played on? We were talking about 75 or 76. He said, oh, the most talented team I played on was 1970. If we hadn't been injured, we would have just run the table. Oh yeah. Well, if we don't get Merritt hurt and Simpson hurt, yeah, we had to, we had to bring up Milt Wilcox from the minor leagues right. to have, for us to spot in the World Series. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it was it was Alex Johnson could hit. I mean, we had all the way through the lineup. I mean, it's just uh, I can remember one time I, I asked Kazuski, I said, "Clue, you got to work with me," because I got started off bad at the plate, really bad. I hit nothing the first month. And I said, Clue, can I get maybe get a couple extra swings? He said, don't worry about it. He said, just catch ground balls and shake hands. That's exactly what he told me. <laughs> oh, God. Big Clue just told you just, just catch Don't worry ground. about it. Catch ground balls we, and shake hands. Does that basically mean we got other guys that can hit? You just need to play yeah, defense? Yeah, we, we ain't worried about you. We'll score some <laughs> runs. 
I, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. Now, speaking of Dave Bristol, he he gave Tony Perez the name Big Dog, did he not? Did he? Yeah. Well, we had, a, we had a pretty rough pitching staff, I think, in 67. We had Maloney. Of course, he's going to win 20. Yeah. And, uh, and we had pretty good relief pitching with, uh, I think, we had Clay Carroll and, and Granger. And, and we couldn't get to that part of the game. We, our pitching, uh, starting pitcher was having a little rough. O'Toole was getting a little older and all. They finally got rid of him. We had uh, uh, McCool left, Ellis left, and all that stuff. So we was kind of building in the uh, pitching area. But... Uh, Anyway, Dave Bristol was, uh, he was just the kind of guy that he's going to get everything he can get out of you. And he's going to make you a better player and a better person if he can. If it ain't because he, it's not because he didn't work at it. Now, he made a lot of people mad. I'm telling you, he's, he, there's a lot of people who hated him and all that stuff. He didn't care. He said, I'm going to get you the big legs and make you a better man. And he kept uh, saying that. But anyway, the pitching staff's going real bad. They're getting beat up. We, we're scoring, a lot of times, we'd have to score 10, 11 runs and win. So he had a big meeting in there. And he said, fellas, you pitchers are going to have to try to help the offense out a little bit. He said, we're scoring 8, 9, 10 runs. He said, we can't win a ball game. I'm going to tell you one thing right now. You pitchers, you listen to me. If you can hold them long enough, the big dog – We'll drive in a winning run. And that stayed with him the rest of his life. Wow. The big dog didn't cut it down. Pointing at Tony Perez and yeah. said the big dog because he was, you he know. He said, if you, no if you hold him long, long enough, he's going to win the game for you. And that's what he told him. That's and it stuck. Yeah, he and did. And it went to doggy. and Doggy, yeah, it went on from there. Wow. Uh, what was playing in Crosley Field like? I mean, it was at the end of its era, obviously. It had been around yeah. a long time. Well, I see. Uh, I played there about five years or four and a mm-hmm. half years, whatever. Anyway, I don't know. I it's, it's uh, I don't know whether the terrain was like that for weather or snow or kind of like it wasn't really on a hill or nothing. But you had to walk up to for a home plate like this. Walk a long way up there. If you strike out, you you got you know them fans were right there. Yeah, right there. So it was a little rough day if you had a couple. Uphill of to first base. Uphill to home plate. The home plate. Yeah. Okay, I got you. Uphill to home plate. Dugout probably seated uh, 12 tops. No bathroom. So you had to go all the way around, go back in the you – know, actually use a, the uh, bathroom where the people were using. Hold on a second. You had to use the restroom where the fans would go during the game? Yeah, if, it, if somebody was in. I think they had a little small restroom. Because like I know you had like to a walk urinal, through. A urinal, a urinal or yeah. something out there. I don't know. But, but we had to walk down through the stands to get to the field. Yeah. And if you had a bad night tonight before, it wasn't a pretty sight sometimes, you know. I can't, I mean, imagine. A lot of verbal, I can't imagine that today. Verbally, you can get beat up. Yeah. I know you had to walk through the fans to get there, but I didn't know you had to use the same restroom. You, a good friend of mine, Darren Johnson, I mean, I, I, I don't know why. I, we held him back. That's the only way. Because I said, hell with them. Hell with them. They'll get them tonight. Heck with them. You know, they don't get no trouble over that clown. Oh yeah, I mean you had uh, you had a you had a you had a burger beer crew right there by third base too. Yeah. That wasn't a pretty sight either. About the fifth <laughs> inning, they done had them a few burgers, and they just ready to rip somebody up to make them. But who's right in front of them? My first year, I played third base. Oh. I was right there. I was I was just there. So we'll get on them. So that's life. So you had to just learn how to take it. What was it like? Um, 
you know, everyone talks about, well, the final piece of the big red machine was the, the trade that brought over Morgan and Billingham. Uh, and you were unfortunately going the other way. Um, what was it like being a part uh, of that and missing out on what could have been in the mid Well, uh, I don't know. See, I, the biggest part of the trade was, I think, that uh, that Hausman and Wagner and, that, of course, the Cincinnati organization was thinking about it, was uh, a speed to turf. Yeah. See, we just moved into the 70, half of 70. I right. played half of 70 and 71 over there at uh, Riverfront. Right. Then they said, well, we're going to go for – they got Tolan. They got uh, – Rose was still running halfway decent. Mm-hmm. Then you got your power boys. You got, you got uh, Bench, Perez, and uh, – Bench, Perez, who else? Lee Mays, and Morgan. Now you got speed, power, strong up the middle, speed in center field. Best catcher of baseball. Oh, you got Concepcion, Morgan, and Geronimo up the middle. And then you get, then you get a bench. Hey, then in the trade two, you get a fifteen-game winner in, in Billingham. Yeah. And I mean, uh, but I mean, they got uh, good players, but people don't realize that year, nineteen seventy-two, after that trade was made, we were five or six games ahead in August of them. Yeah. And they came in, and we had a, we, our pitchers got hurt. They steamrolled us on. They beat us four out of five. Or we had a rain out. Or didn't have a rain out, but we. I don't know. They they swept us. Is what they did. Yeah. Four four games or five games. I don't know what it was. And they went in the first place, and that was uh, that was it. Were you bitter at the time when they made the trade? Yeah, I was a little bit because I didn't think I'd, I'd won the Golden Glove. I had a pretty not a good year offensively. Uh, and uh, we were we were kind of a little bit close. You know, we got along pretty well and all yeah. that stuff. And. But you, you uh, if you think about the trade, Houston wanted first baseman or, or Ed, one of Rez, May, yeah. Rez, all the Reds had to do was, of course, they got Mickey in that trade too, you know, Dennis yeah. Mickey. We need to move Perez off of third anyway. Yeah. So we throw him over there. They probably could have got Perez or because they just want to make a, a, a trade for the uh, one of the first basements. Right. And then you get Minky to come in there, and then you got Davey, you got Morgan, you got Perez. And, I mean, uh, I'd like to manage that, wouldn't you? I'd like oh, to manage no, that situation. I think I could fill out the lineup card <laughs> with, with but, that one. <laughs> but uh, it was just a good trade for the Reds. I yeah. think it was a good trade for Houston because yeah. we had a pretty good team out there too. Right. Yeah. And supposedly our pitching was going to be a lot better. Didn't couldn't finish the game. It was like they they've got a guy named Jim York was supposed to be a great finisher from Kansas City and a John Mayberry deal. They had Mayberry. They traded yeah. Mayberry too. So he right. got. It. So we had a, we had Raider, Mesker, myself, and Lee May. And then you had Sedano, Bob Watson, and Jimmy Wynn. That's not a bad team. I am sitting across from a legend, one of my favorite guys I've ever met, one of my favorite former Reds. Uh, love this guy, the legend. Reds Hall of Famer Jim Maloney, how you doing? I'm doing okay, Jim. After an introduction like that, I can hardly wait to hear what I have to say. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, I mean, you look at, at your career, and you were uh, well ahead of your time as far as velocity goes. Um, a power pitcher. Um, how many no hitters you throw? Well, I threw uh, three. They get, yeah. but they gave me credit for two. Actually, right, exactly. You know, there's got, some gray area there. Yeah, there's some real gray area there. A guy hit a home run off me in the eleventh inning, and so they counted it for a long time as a no hitter. Yeah. But then they changed it when uh, they uh, put the asterisk by Maris's name when he hit 61 home runs uh, right. in 
in uh, 162 games. Right. So I got taken off with a lot of other guys. There so it was a home guy. run in the 11th, though. Yes, it was. I had a 10-inning <laughs> no-hitter. It was 10 innings of no-hit. Yeah. Ball. How about that? Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't see that today. No. Uh, just no, no shot. They wouldn't. Uh, I mean, you barely see nine-inning uh, no-hitters. Yeah, no. It, uh, well, if it, I've seen uh, – Today, where they have a uh, a kid will have a no hitter going, they take him out in the seventh inning. You yeah. Know, oh yeah. No, there's pitches. a big. Yeah, you've got the combined no hitter. Oh stat boy. Now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love this. No, no, you know, not to demean. Baseball's changed. There's just no way around it. Not to demean what's going on, but I love uh, the you guys that played back in the day, and, and I mentioned a phrase like combined no hitter. Oh, okay. Combined no hitter. <laughs> Shouldn't count, right? No, absolutely. <laughs> you got to when they when the manager handed you the ball, say so you go as hard and long as you can. Oh, no doubt about it. Now, how how many pitches did you throw in these no hitters? Well, the one in Chicago where I the game I won one to nothing was it was a little bit uh, uh, it was a little sloppy. I I mean uh, I really I had good stuff, but I was a little bit erratic. And I think I walked like 10 guys. I struck out like 13 and hit two guys. But I ended up throwing 187 pitches. Goodness gracious. When a guy gets to 87 pitches nowadays, like, oh, boy, reaching that 100 pitch mark, his arm might fall off. Well, then you have you have 187. Then you, then you warm up. I figure I threw 50 or so uh, warming up. And then eight pitches in between innings for 10 innings. That's another 80 pitches. I probably threw probably well over 300 pitches that day. And we're talking a four-man rotation back That's then. right. That's right. Poor so. man. <laughs> Poor man. Yeah. So it's not a they five went to five-man. They uh, Finally, they went to a five-man. And to be honest with you, I, I was really going to have trouble staying on a four-day re- uh, game day. You know, uh, when they went to five starters, that really helped, helped really? me. Oh, yeah. yeah, I bet. I mean, it, it would have to prolong careers. Right. Uh, they mentioned you of like, if he wouldn't have gotten hurt, man, we might be talking about a national baseball hall of famer. What was the injury that really did you win? It, it wasn't arm. Was it Achilles? Yeah, it was Achilles tendon. I, uh, had, had trouble in 1969, the whole year with my heel. And, uh, you know, I wasn't a complainer or anything, but I, I told the trainer and then, uh, they did x-rays and, uh, and then Hausen, I talked to Hausen, and Hausen told me that uh, he didn't think it was too serious. And he, it, it, what sort of really got me is he told me he said that I didn't have any pain tolerance and that Bob Gibson pitched with uh, pain and stuff, or shoulder and all that kind of stuff. And I said, that really upset me. But uh, so I didn't say anything anymore that year. And then hopefully that uh, off season that I would, my, my, it would heal on its own. You know, I would get my heel would come back. And then in 1970, I, uh, I uh, was holding out on my contract because they wanted to cut me. They wanted to cut me $2,000. And I'd won 12 and lost five the year before in 69. And I told them, I said, I'm not, I, I don't want to take a cut. I'm not taking a cut. And so then uh, I started spring training late. I, did, I finally ended up signing. And... Uh, I took a two thousand dollar cut. That's the way they, they it, things were. And uh, wow, to think so, of a uh, two thousand dollar cut. Yeah, in those a, days, I mean that. But anyway, spending uh, money that's walking around money nowadays. Yeah, that uh, it's um, so we uh, 
When I started running in the outfield, it, my heels started bothering me again. And so I just didn't say anything. I, I built up a little sponge in my heel where my heel would stick a little bit out of my shoe where the, the back end of the shoe wouldn't rub around the back part where my Achilles inserted in there. So it gave me a little relief when I pitched, but when I pushed off to run, that's when it really bothered me. So I started the third game of the season against the Dodgers and came up to hit the first time, hit a ball up the middle and took one step out of the uh, batter's box and it went pop. And Tom Howler, the catcher, he heard it pop and the umpire heard it pop. And, well, I, and uh, so I took a couple of steps and Ted Kozuski was the first base coach, mm -hmm. came over and wanted to know what happened and I said, I don't think it's good. I don't know what happened. I mean, but I, I couldn't, my leg was dangling like a horse with a broken leg, you know, broken foot. Ugh. So, wow. That's what happened. I never, and if you only had the surgical procedures that they have nowadays, you could have made it back. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know and we'll never know the answer to that question. Yeah, but, that was uh, 1970, right? Yeah. You know, that was, uh, boy, that was a heck of a team in 1970. Yes, it um, was. When I talked to Pete Rose, he said, and I was talking about the, the most talented, the best team, and we were talking about talking about 75 and 76. He says, maybe the best team I played on was 1970. We just got injured. The first right. half of 1970 was it was right. incredible. So yeah. Well, they had he, Wayne Simpson as a pitcher, and he, yeah. did, he won like nine straight games, and then he had arm problems, and he was out of baseball in a year and a half. So, yeah, you know. Wow. What, what, what could have been. Yeah, what could have been, exactly. Yeah, but uh, you were known as one of the hardest-throwing pitchers in the 60s. Uh, what they clock you at? 99, although that's probably... What clock? What kind of clock? I they don't know. They didn't have a clock. <laughs> there was no clock. All I know is that when they left the park, they were going 400 and some miles an hour. <laughs> Ten or more games you won from 63 to uh, 69, recorded over 200 strikeouts, four consecutive seasons, and, of course, those no-hitters. Now, what was it... Uh, like being a Cincinnati Red in the 1960s, Crosley Field. Uh, I liked it. I really, I really liked it. I, uh, when I signed and uh, I signed with, I had a major league contract, so I had, I signed for some money. They gave me a bonus. I had a decent bonus, a hundred thousand dollars. It was a lot of money in 1959. Oh yeah. So I went to the clubhouse. I flew all the way to Tampa and got in the clubhouse and. Oh, uh, man, there was Frank Robinson, you know, there was Veda Pinson, there was Gus Bell. Yeah. You know, David Bell's right. grand, grandfather. And Wally Post and Ed Bailey and all these guys I've been reading about in sports magazines. I was in the same clubhouse with them, so it was quite a uh, thrill. I just sort of shut up and sort of listened and sort of took direction. And I had signed on April Fool's Day, which was April 1st, 1959. So when I got to the Tampa... The team broke camp like April 5th, so I was only there for four or five days, and then they sent me to Plant City uh, with the other minor league teams, and uh, I hooked, I was on with uh, Johnny Vandermeer. Johnny Vandermeer was my manager in Topeka. That's why I ended up in Topeka was first year in the minor that? leagues. Johnny Vandermeer. I mean, yeah. Double no hit. Oh, yeah. You obviously read all about him, and then all of a sudden he's your manager. Yeah. Wow. That's a record that'll never be broken. Oh, no chance. It might be tied, but uh, to break it, I, I don't know if that'll even ever be tied in today's baseball. Oh no, know. not today's I... baseball. No, forget it. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to tie that record. Yeah, no way. No, that's one of those uh, unattainable ones. I yeah, mean, I'm not sure they'll get the um, Dimaggio's 
hit streak record. I mean, Pete came the closest to that. Um, boy, yeah, it's tough. Those records are really tough, really. Yeah. I mean, um, how about uh, 1960s uh, Pete Rose? What was he like as a young guy? Oh, he was. Uh, you put a little mustard on the hot dog, and uh, that's the way he was. You know, he started that deal where in spring training that he'd get a ball four and he'd run to first base fa faster than I could, wide open, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, boy, this guy's asking for some trouble, you know, with oh, the yeah. other opposing pitchers. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they, he got hit, I think, a few times, and but he just kept running to first base on ball four. And pretty soon, I think it was Whitey Ford or something, we were playing the Yankees, they call him Charlie Hustle. Right. And then they they just figured that's the way that that kid played ball. <laughs> and uh, so he, he gained the respect of, it, uh, of right. the other opposing players. Now, what are some things back then that would tick off uh, a pitcher in which you might let one slip and put one in the ribs a little bit? It was a different game back then. What are some of the things if a guy dug, I mean, they talk about Bob Gibson, if, you know, if he dug his spikes in too much that he would brush him back. What, what were some things that were the so-called unwritten rules? Well, I think that, uh, you know, if a guy, we didn't have too much with guys standing there at home plate, uh, watching the ball, leave the ballpark and not even move. <laughs> uh, the, if that started then in the sixties, I don't think it did, but, we certainly wouldn't have uh, – there wouldn't be very many of them watching the ball leave the ballpark. They'd be running to first base. And, uh, but uh, I, I don't know. It was just um, – um, you know, I can, I can honestly say what, uh, what happened was uh, Frank Robinson got hit a lot because he stood on the plate. And I can remember uh, just a story that I have that happened that um, – that uh, we were playing the Dodgers, and uh, I don't know who was pitching, but he, he, they hit Robinson in the ribs. And he just went to first base, and uh, so he came back to the – I was pitching. I was pitching in the game, and he came back to the dugout, and I walked over just, you know, cautiously, you know, nonchalantly, and I said, hey, Frank, who do you want me to get? So I was going to retaliate for him, whoever he wanted, you know. Yeah. And uh, – he, he told me, he says, I don't think they were throwing at me. And I said, well, I'll, I'll, you know, whoever you want me to get, I mean, that's fine. I mean, we'll, we'll stop this nonsense. He didn't say much else, so I did So I come up to hit, and John Roseboro was a catcher. And I was a left-hand hitter, so I walked behind him from the dugout at Crosley Field. I walked behind him to get in the, in the box. And as I walked behind him, I said, uh, I, I looked at him and I said, I didn't even know Roseboro. I never, I never talked to him and, or did anything. I mean, I looked at him and I said, hey, I said, um, Frank Robinson, if, you, if he gets hit again, I think Drysdale was pitching. I think if he gets hit again, I, I says, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to hit you, Mr. Roseboro, as hard as I can with my hardest fastball. I'm going to try to throw it right through your midsection his eyes go up big as saucers and the umpire he didn't know he's looking at me too and i just got in the plate and i started hitting him but we never had any problem the rest of the game 
Heck yeah, because you threw purple digits with so, the fastball. But anyway, I don't know if that had a deal, but I certainly told him that we're not going to tolerate that stuff. You know, players could my, uh, players manage the, the the stuff that went on the field in those days. You know, they they uh, they took care of what you know what what's happening. You know, today uh, one of the big things that get me is the fraternizing that goes on. I I can't stand that. I can't stand a guy getting a hit. Watching a guy get a hit off a pitcher, a Cincinnati pitcher, go to second base, get a double, and the second baseman come over and hit the guy in the butt, you know, and say like something like "nice hit" or something like, "What's that all about?" You know, I, I never talked to anybody. I mean, uh, I don't care. Uh, I know guys have friends that get traded. We did too, but I never, you know, if you want to talk to somebody, a friend, you talk to him after the game. Yeah. No, I'm with you. It took a long time um, for. You know, because it gradually started changing, especially the free agency and how frequent it is, and guys going to different teams now. Uh, they have the same agents, et cetera. Um, but back when you played, man, the, you, there was just no fraternizing at all. No, I mean, I you, mean you, look at hockey. Those guys all played in different teams and stuff. You never see any uh, fraternizing one at the before the game, or right? After, and after the game, they go to dinner or something. But yeah, you know that's that's the way. I, I mean, that's just the way I was brought up. I can't stand it. I cannot stand guys putting their arms all over each other while the game's going on and how you do a nice hit. Oh, you know, hey, forget it. I mean, that's uh, that's just one of my pet peeves on the, on the way the game is played today. I don't like it. Yeah. What are some other pet peeves? And I, I'm not looking for you to demean uh, the players today or the game. It's just totally different. It's um, completely different. We'll say completely different, but very much different from what you played are there some other things that well just bother you well uh, you know they they've taken out all this stuff about not running over the catcher and the second baseman moving him you know where you can't slide after him for a double play or you know try to make him so you can break up a double play all that stuff is uh you know it's looked as as safety re, re, you know deals or whatever but uh you know, there was – that's just the game was the game was played. You could run into Bill Mazeroski at second base and you'd run into a stump. You know, I mean, you weren't going anywhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, they look at it as safety today. Everything was all safe. These hitters, they got all kinds of armor on them. They got a mask on. They got a helmet with a thing coming around the front of their face. You can't even see their face for crying out loud. So that just gives a hitter that much more ability to stand in there. And he's going to dig in, and he's going to—he's not going to be afraid of, uh, or, of, uh, or being aware of being hit. Right. And uh, uh, so then, when a pitcher comes inside just a little bit, they get all get upset, the umpires and everything else. So that's all changed, you know. But it's like I said in my, in my day, it was all monitored by the by the players. Oh yeah, police. You, know, so you guys police the game that's yourselves. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, you were. One of the all-time great storytellers. I mean, some of the uh, stories you've told over the years. Uh, when I say Red's legend, not only on the field, but off it telling some stories. And my favorite, well, I've got a lot of favorites of yours, but um, is your story about a young Johnny Bench that, <laughs> uh, can you, I think you know what story Well, I'm yeah. Um, when Bench first came up, uh, I was I was like 26 years old, I believe, and he was like 19. 
And everybody knew he, he came in from uh, Buffalo. I think they brought him up from Buffalo. He was in Buffalo. And everybody knew that he was a Hall of Famer. I mean, just the way he carried himself at that time. I mean, he was, but he was awful cocky. I mean, he was, uh, he was arrogant to be around. I mean, he just thought, you know, he was hot stuff, and which he was. He could back it up, you know, like a yeah. Muhammad Ali, more right. you might say. And uh, so anyway, at that particular time in my, uh, my career, I was uh, fooling around with a uh, uh, spitball. <laughs> and uh, now, the, was it actual spit or was no, it a foreign no, no, substance? No, no, no. I was just—I'm going to get to that. <laughs> okay. But, uh, <laughs> but it, uh, but it was a. Uh, uh, when I was home in the winter, I, a friend of mine, my uh, delivered two of my children, uh, was a doctor, and uh, he was a Yankees fan, and he liked pitching, and he's and we we're talking about spitballs because of Whitey Ford was throwing them in those days, and he says. Why don't you ever try this KY jelly? And I, I said no. So he gave me a, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 tubes. I took him to spring training with me. So anyway, I had been working with a KY jelly ball, you know, like a spitball, and I threw it hard. And if the catcher didn't know it was coming, he couldn't catch it. I mean, it would bust out, uh, it'd come up to the plate and explode, and they couldn't hit it. I don't, I don't remember anybody ever getting a hit off of it. But I didn't throw it that much. I just threw it when spots where I needed to. Yeah. Like a guy on third base right. with two strikes, got the KY jelly ball going. And it's <laughs> adios. It's over with. And so anyway, so we go over the hitters before the game and bench, you know, he says, Net. And so I tell him, I said, John, I says, I got this KY jelly ball. And he just was brought up. And he says, um, I says, I think we'll need a sign. You know, you'll need a sign. So, uh, you'll know it's coming so you can adjust, you know, to catch the ball. He looked at me and he says, you throw it, I'll catch it. <laughs> I said, oh, I said to myself, oh boy, this guy's, you know, okay. So we started the game. I didn't say anything. So I wasn't gonna throw it with anybody on base or anything. So I waited, I got two outs and two, and, and nobody on in the first inning. And I loaded it up. I had it on the back of my neck. I had it under, on my belt. And so I could just go in between. I get it on my two fingers and put it on the smooth part of the ball. And um, so I loaded it up, and he called for a fastball, and I threw it, and, and he put his glove up, and he didn't even get a glove on it, and it dropped so fast it hit him in the foot, hit him in the toe, and, you know, off the end of the shin guard there. And he went down on one knee and let out a ooh, you know, noise. It, we're at Grogley Field. And so the ball caromed off, and so I figured, well, he's going to say something. Now, he just said nothing. He got a new ball, threw it out to me. So I got him out. The next inning, same thing. I got two outs, nobody on, and I loaded it up with a KY jelly call for a fastball, and I threw it, and I let it go a little bit on a high, about a shoulder high, and it, he jumped up off his crouch, crouch, and the ball went up, and then the ball started to explode down, and he didn't get any anywhere near it, and it hit him in the cup. It broke his cup in half. It cracked his, ca his cup in half. So he goes down on all fours on home plate at Crosley Field. There's 20,000 people in the stands, and he's going, ooh, ooh, ooh. He sounds like a wounded buffalo. And uh, so I walk up there, and he's laying on, he's, oh. 
Oh, the trainer comes out and they turn him over on his on his back, and you know how they pull up his belt. You know yeah. they do that thing because it's bothering right. him down there. And he's pulling up. Oh, about ten minutes went by and he finally gets up and shook himself. And so I got a ball from the umpire. And I started to walk back to the mound. I got up to the mound. I turn around. There's Bench right behind me. He's looking at me, and he's got his helmet up on his uh, mask up on his helmet. And he says, "I think I need a sign for that pitch." <laughs> <laughs> brought him down. To, brought him down to size. That anyway. All right. We'll get back to our Hall of Fame best of conversation after these messages from Kroger. It's summer, and that means it's hot outside. Oh, sure, you have shade, you have sprinklers, you have air conditioning. But do you have Reese's Cups from the freezer? Yeah, you heard me, frozen Reese's Cups. Reese's Cups from your freezer might just be the best thing since, since, since Reese's Cups. Not from your freezer. So cool off this summer with your favorite Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And the next time you stop at your local Kroger, grab Reese's Cups and chill out. Love getting prices that are lower than low on backyard favorites like grill-ready hamburgers and fresh-picked strawberries? Then shop at Kroger. We give you more ways to save on the fresh you love with tools like the Kroger app, where you can find personalized coupons on top of weekly sales, plus rewards like fuel points, giving you prices that are lower than the everyday low. Kroger, fresh for everyone. I don't know if I ever told the other bench story about... Uh, Flying on the airplane. Oh, lay it on us. Okay, well, uh, the uh, another thing is, when he, he's from Binger, Oklahoma, he didn't like to fly. Really? And uh, he was leery of it. He'd never been on much of a plane deal. So he got into Tampa, and uh, so they had a list right away. They put guys that were going to Miami. So we'd fly over to Miami, and they'd play two or three games up. Uh, Pompano Beach, there was Washington, then they had West Palm, was Atlanta. And then Miami was uh, uh, Baltimore. Baltimore was in Miami in those days. So we'd fly to Miami and then play two or three games and fly back to Tampa. So anyway, we're all sitting there and he's saying, boy, I hope I don't, even, I don't, hope I don't go on that trip. I said, why? He said, well, I'm a little leery about flying. I said, ah. I said, don't worry about it. I said, so I went over there and my name was on it, on the list. Because I was going to start a game, I don't know, with Pompano or something. I had to be on the team. So, And his name was on the list. Oh, he, so he's going. I said, listen. I says, just meet me out there at the, at the plane. Well, I said, we go on the bus. I said, you want to sit next to me? I'll, guy, I'll get you through this thing. Okay, okay. I'll, I'd appreciate that. Okay, fine. So he was, he was calming down a little bit. And he says, so we got out there and we got on the plane. And they had these uh, DC-3... Or, DC-6Bs, they had four motors on each, or two meter, uh, motors on each wing. It was just before we started flying jets. And the plane was a fine plane. It would go about like 375, 375 miles an hour. So anyway, we had the same crew all the time. And they would come on the fifth inning of an exhibition game. And they'd sit there and watch the first five innings. And they'd go back out to the airport and get the plane ready. Because at the end of the game, we were going to bus out to the airport and get on the plane. So anyway, they stayed, they got, they left, and uh, we finished the game. We got dressed, and we go out to the ball, uh, to the airport in Tampa there. There's the plane, so the bus pulls up, and we get off and get on the plane, and Bench sits down next to me. 
And I says, now, don't worry about anything, John. And he says, uh, this guy's been flying our flights. He's Captain Al. I didn't even know what his last name. He called himself Captain Al. Always had his tie on crooked and his hat off, cocked off to the side. And uh, he didn't look any more like a pilot than I did. But uh, <laughs> he, flew, he flew our plane. Anyway, I says, okay. So he gets a deal there, and he says, uh, clicks on and says, hi, this is Captain Al, guys. He says, boy, that was a great game today. Frank Robinson hit the home run. Nice going, Frank. He says, I'll get up as soon as we get out here and warm up and get taked off. He says, I'll, I'll get back to you, and I'll give you a little information on the flight over to Miami. Talk to you later. Bang. So then he starts swarming each engine up, you know, and it goes, you know, starts that noise and a big puff of smoke comes out and Bench jumped back in the seat. I says, don't worry about that. I says, everyone, I'm going to have a puff of smoke come out of their engine. That's just part of the deal. Then they're going to rev them up a little bit and then we're going to taxi out. Then they're going to synchronize these engines at the runway before he takes off. Oh, okay. So he got all going. He said, we started taxiing out got out the end there and so anyway he started revving one in oh and the plane started shaking a little bit and he said i don't i don't like this i don't like the way this thing's shaking i said he's got the brake on us we don't want, he's got to do this to synchronize these engines so when we take off it's they're all going together in the same speed so anyway he says okay that's good so anyway he takes off gets up we get up about five thousand six thousand feet and the captain al comes on and says hey this is captain al again he says, we're going to have a nice little easy flight over here, little puffy clouds. He says, we'll be up around 10,000 feet. We're coming over here to Miami, about an hour flight from here. So he says, I just think you guys just need to sit back in your seat and relax. And oh, my God, no, click. Total silence. Bench jumped back in his seat. His head hit the back of the seat. And I, I was a little bit shook up, too, because I never had that happen where the guy said something like that and then just cut the sound off and everybody was looking at each other on the plane the plane seemed to be okay so then uh, about a minute long minute went by and uh, it clicked on again and says hey this is captain al again sorry guys he says he's sort of laughing he says you should yeah he says you guess what had happened to me he says you never would have guessed happened to me he says the stewardess came in and she said she tripped on the the, the thing here the thing on the floor and spilled the coffee and cream all over the front of my pants. And he says, you ought to see the front of my pants. And Vince jumped up. And he says, you ought to see the back of mine. <laughs> Joe Morgan. Before we came on here, you were yeah. telling me the story about you looking up at Tony Perez. Oh, yeah. What? Can you well, I didn't steal second. I didn't steal third base or home. I stole home once in my career. Yeah. But I didn't steal third base much or home because once I got in the scoring position bench Perez Foster those guys would drive me in okay and that was my job I thought to get in the scoring position I'd take a walk steal a base or whatever so we're in Chicago one day Wrigley Field and I don't know what came over me I said I'm gonna steal home so I go and I slide in and I'm laying on the ground on the plate right and I look up and Tony Perez is looking down at me he says don't you ever do that again he said, if you come and do it again, I'm going to swing. He said, I drive you in all the time, don't I? And I looked up at him and I said, yes, sir. And, <laughs> and I never stole home again. I never did that. But I felt like if I could get in the scoring position, get to second base, one of those guys would drive me in. And they did most of the time. So he said he would swing and like basically swing take your head off. Was, yeah. 
guess, and I, you know what? I didn't know whether he was kidding or not. I wasn't going to take a chance, so I never did you that said, again. You actually said yes, sir. I said yeah. yes, sir. I didn't say yes, Tony, or whatever. I said yes, sir. Pete Rose. Well, there's nobody like Pete. I used to say that every player should have the opportunity to play one year with Pete Rose, and they would be a better player. And I'm an example of that. I came here from Houston, and I was already a good player. And I tell people all the time, everybody thinks I learned to play here in Cincinnati. No, I learned to play baseball in Houston. Right. When I got to Cincinnati, all the things that I knew about playing fit well with the guys who were here. And the other, show you what happened. Sparky Anderson put my locker next to Pete Rose. I mean, you think about that. Here I am coming from Houston. Very few people know me. You know, they knew me from playing against me, but Pete and I were friends already. So Sparky chose where you guys – Sparky chose where I sat. Let's put it that way. I don't know if he did it with everyone. That doesn't happen But he did it – no, I know it's a joke now, but that's neither here nor there. But Sparky put me next to Pete Rose. And I tell people all the time, Pete Rose helped me to get this Hall of Fame ring. I helped Pete Rose to become a better player. Mm -hmm. We would sit there and we'd talk about things he could do better, things that I could do better. And each day we did that with each other. I mean, we, that's the way we did it. We, did, we would sit there before the game and say Tom Seaver's pitching. Now they have film. You can go look at how they pitched you last time and all that stuff. Right. We had it right here in our heads. And Pete would say, well, last time he got me out with a slider with a winning run at second base or I got a hit off a slide. Whatever it was, we remembered what happened. And that was the same with me. I said, well, he got me out with a fastball in. He better never try it again. But that was the way that we talked before the game. Before every game, we would whoever was pitching, we would talk about those things. So um, Pete helped make me a better player. I like to think I helped make him a better player. Pete had never walked till I got here. And he had 100 walks the next year, blah, blah, blah. And he became, in my mind, a better player than he was before mm-hmm. I got here. And I definitely became a better player locker next to him. So I have this fondness. We were just best friends, too. And, I mean, after still every – Yeah, we still are. Oh, no, no, we're still best friends. I, I texted him the other day. It was his birthday. But what – and, well, I got to tell you this, because we mentioned me being ill. When I was ill, Pete Rose called me every day. Sorry. No, man, you don't have to apologize. I get a little emotional because every day that I was sick, he called me. That's how I was doing. If people don't understand what that meant, you know, to me every day when I was going through what I was going through, he would call me, how you doing, man? And we'd talk, and next day he'd call. And Pete being Pete, I got well. And I hadn't heard from him for a couple of days. So I said, man, what's, I called him. I said, what's going on, man? I haven't heard from you. He said, hey, man, you don't need me now. You know, that's the way Pete is. And so, you know, I get, like I said, I get emotional because that was part of my healing process. Yeah. Him calling me just to say hi and ask how I was doing. And he didn't have to do that. You know, people think what they want, but he didn't have to do that. That's why all of my all the things that have happened with Pete and whatever, you never heard me badmouth him, and I never will. I don't care what anybody else says. I will never think any differently of Pete Rose than I do. You know, and so and he and I, like I say, we still talk. We check on each other, make sure we're okay. So, um, you know, other than my wife, Pete Rose had the most to do with me getting well. Tom Browning, welcome to the Gym Day podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. 
<laughs> is this a first? This is very first ever, ever in, podcast. Into the podcast world. Uh, but I think in the general Cincinnati area, I'm 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 known as Mr. Perfect, or at least that's the moniker I get. Uh, well, that's how you're introduced, man. That's, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, yeah, he needs no introduction. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, 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 the cool thing is, is that Johnny Bench calls me perfect, you know. And, Does he really? Yeah, and that's and, – and, and Now that's cool. Oh, it's great, you know. And I, I and then uh, I got a text from him, and I'd never heard, got a text from Johnny Bench before. And uh, the text said, hey, perfect, this is five. You know, so oh, that is fantastic. Oh yeah, I, I mean, it just—I had to show everybody I could. I said, "Look at this. This guy calls me perfect." You know, and I hey, said, perfect. This is five. That's yeah. beautiful. Oh, it's awesome. I do. Yeah. I mean, I just you know, because the the uh, the Reds of the '70s were 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 my team as a kid yeah. growing up. My teenage years, '75, '76. You know, they just—I uh, was in hog heaven because I I know how when in '72 happened and '70 happened, right. and then they came back and won and. They got so close, you know, a couple times and didn't win. Uh, and then they finally got on top and won in 75, 76. And those guys made a very big impression on me. And then when I got to the Cincinnati Reds and Davey Concepcion and Pete and Tony and Ken Griffey were there, uh, I felt blessed that I got to be a part of that. You know, I got to know them and I consider them friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I sometimes have to remind myself, you know, gosh, you get to hang out with these guys and Joe Morgan as well, too. Cause Joe and I have been pretty, uh, became pretty good friends over the years too. So. Well, I grew up idolizing that team and, uh, I still pinch myself. I mean, you know, when, when Joe Morgan says, Hey Jim, you know, it's like, well, wow, I, wow. I, I, I used to walk, I used to walk up to Joe Morgan all the time, even yeah. my playing day when I was playing and Joe would show up, I'd say, Hey, Joe Morgan, Tom Brown. And he said, I know who you are, but you know, I just never assumed that he would. Cause you know, those guys were icons, you know, I yeah. just, uh, I mean, I was almost afraid to talk to him. And then when they came and talked to me, I said, Oh, wow, that's kind of cool. They know who I am. And, you know, cause I never put myself on, on in the, you know, in that category or with those kind of guys, because they, they were, you know, probably the greatest team ever to play. Yeah. When we had, remember they played the last game at Riverfront? Yeah. Uh, well, Pete, Pete, uh, the softball game we played. Right. Uh, I got to start that game. And I went out there on the mound and I looked and I had Johnny Bench behind home plate, Tony Perez at first, Joe at second, Davey at short, Pete was at third, George was in left, uh, Cesar wasn't there, so Eric played center and then Griffey was in right. And, uh, that's crazy. I just, I, I kind of did a pirouette. I just kind of spun around and just looked at it all. I said, "Oh my God, I'm living my childhood dream," you know. And that then gives me goosebumps just right now. Oh yeah. Well, and going. then I gave up a base hit. Uh, I did give up nine home runs in that game, but I, you know, it was a softball, <laughs> softball game. Softball game. Yeah, but I remember I gave up a base hit, and anytime you give up a base hit uh, from the mound, you always looked at second base to see who you got if it balls hit back to you, whether right. you got the shortstop or, and, and Joe patted on his chest like that. You got me on a ground ball. And I just, ah. you know, it was just cool. I couldn't believe it. So it was awesome. The day at Wrigley field where you ended that up is one of my better moments. It, it won't replace the world series yeah. or even my perfect game. But now that, that just was by semi accident, I guess. Uh, we had played the Pittsburgh pirates in, in Pittsburgh and I ran into a guy named Bob walk. Uh, who's a friend of mine, he said, hey, when you get to Wrigley, go meet the ground crew guy. He'll get you up in the scoreboard. He said, it's pretty cool to look at the game from the scoreboard. Yeah. So when we get into Wrigley, it was about two weeks later, uh, we go to Wrigley, and I went down and saw the ground crew guy, and he said, you want to get in the scoreboard? I said, I do. He said, well, I can't. He said, I got some. I caught some flack from the front office for allowing Bobby to do that, so I can't do that. So, And Timmy Belcher was on the team at the time, so we're out there shagging during batting practice, and 
I also I look at the buildings and I said, you know what, it'd be kind of cool to maybe sneak over and get on one of them buildings. You know, I could probably get away with that. And uh, so we go inside the clubhouse and uh, Tom Hellman, uh, uh, Timmy Hellman, who works here in spring training, his brother Tom was the, the clubhouse manager for the visiting clubhouse. I said, uh, we called him Otis. And I said, Otis, do you know anybody that owns any of them buildings? He said, yeah, his name is George Lucas, uh, not the George Lucas, but a George Lucas. I said, do you have his phone number? And he says, I do. I said, can you get him on the phone for me? And he said, sure. So he called him, and, and I said, George, my name is Tom Brown. I'm with the Cincinnati Reds. I was hoping maybe I could sneak over and sit on one of your rooftops, maybe half an inning. He said, that would be so cool. Why don't you meet me out in front of Murphy's Pub in the top of the third inning? I said, okay. So I told Belch, I said, man, I got it. I said, I got to wear a sweatsuit or something. So somebody had a black sweatsuit that they let me borrow. So I sat in the bullpen for the first two innings. Of course, in Wrigley, you know, you don't sit in that dugout very often because it's so little. Oh, and if yeah. you stand up real fast, you bump your head on the right. ceiling, whatever. So I sat in the bullpen for the first two innings. And after the second inning was over, I stood up and I said, all right, boys, look for me. And they said, where are you going? I said, don't worry, you'll find me. So I, I, I said, <laughs> oh, no. you, you called your shot. You told them. Oh, yeah. I didn't tell them where I was going. Yeah. I just said, I'm, uh, just look for me. So uh, I went in the dugout. I said, all right, Belch, I'm out of here. And I went up to the clubhouse, got my sweatsuit. And back then, I don't know if you can even get out of the building nowadays, but I, I met the ground crew guy or the uh, security guy at the gate to, to get out of the building. I unzipped my shirt. I said, I'll be, if you don't mind, I'll be right back, whatever. And he said, that's fine. So I went over and I met George, and we walked down three or four buildings and then uh, walked up three flights of stairs, and I got to the, the, the rooftop, and I took my sweatsuit off and left it right by the doorway of the stairway. And I walked over, and I sat on the ledge. And I took my hat off, and I started waving to my boys in the bullpen. And they saw me. They stood up. They started waving <laughs> back. You know, and then uh, there, while I was there, a lady said, are you really a ball player? And I said, yeah. She says, well, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I just want to see what it was like to watch a ball game from over here. And she says, that is so cool. Do you want a beer and a brats? And I said, oh, no, no. I said, I'm already in enough trouble anyway. So uh, <laughs> anyway, t during that time, Timmy Belcher got the TV camera on me. Oh, okay, yeah. and the while I was there, tip of the cap. yeah, and then while I was there, Timmy, uh, Kevin Mitchell hit a three-run homer, and we took the lead four to three, and we ended up winning the game four to three. So I get back in the dugout uh, in the fourth, by the top of the fourth inning, and Belt says, "Hey, man, I got the TV camera on me." And I said, "Oh, Timmy," I said, "Now you cost me money." I said, "Now they're gonna find me." Uh, so after the game was over, we won the game, you know, and I kind of forgot about it i think basically because i think Riho ended up chasing some ladies out of their seats with that squirt gun you know he yeah. had that, that super soaker right. thing uh so i i kind of completely forgot about it and uh and then a reporter came up to you at my locker and said hey you know you want to talk to me about your your trip to across the street and i said yeah but really before i could answer anything davy johnson tapped me on the other shoulder and said i need to see you in my office and i you know kind of like the principal uh <laughs> He so was I, none too pleased. Oh, no, no, but I can promise you on the inside as a player, he was probably okay with it, but he yeah. was with the Reds and he had to show, and that's what I think Bowden was kind of in charge. Uh, he had to show some sort of, uh, you know, authority, I guess, To and he, and he started chewing me out. I mean, he was screaming at me and stuff, and I said, and that was a year that Tony Perez got fired, okay? Yeah. Uh, and when as soon as Tony got fired, they could have canceled the season for us because we wanted to play for Tony. So anyway, that was part of my reason for doing it, you know, to give us some levity. And, you know, we, like I said, we were 25 guys going in 25 different directions. Winning wasn't really part of the program uh, because we were just so pissed that, that, doggy, really? that, that doggy got fired. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, it, I remember everyone being angry, but that really lasted the whole season. I mean, Davey Johnson was a really good manager, but that – He was really, for the Mets. 
but that really lasted. That, oh, that well, like the animosity of letting Doggy go. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Because we, we, we got fired on our, uh, after coming back from San Francisco. Yeah. We were 20 and 24 on the year. Yeah. We were 44 four games, four games is not enough. Yeah, four time, games under 500. Not enough time to give a manager. That's, so anyway, he started chewing me out and saying some things. And I, and I kind of put my hand up. I said, whoa. I said, first of all, and I th- said a few choice words to him, you know, just to kind of cut him off. And I said, what I did deserves a fine. Uh We'll leave it at that. You just tell me how much it is, and we'll leave it at that. And then I walked out. And he, you know, he fined me five hundred bucks, which was the going rate at the time, I guess, for, for fines. <clears throat> uh, but he ended up. He had me write a five hundred dollar check to his girlfriend's charity, you know. And Marge found out about it, and she was none too happy about that because, first of all. Davey wasn't married. He was living with his girlfriend, so they were living in sin. <laughs> According to Marge. <laughs> According yeah. to Marge, yeah. You know, so there was a little bit of heat over that. But, uh, you know, that's what it, it, it worked out fine. I mean, the players loved it. We go play the Marlins. The very, that's the first year the Marlins came into the league. And we get on to play the Florida Marlins for the first time. And the very first day, Wayne Huizinga, the owner of the Marlins, sent his secretary down to our clubhouse inviting me to sit in his restaurant in right center field sometime during the game. And I said, no, 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 I'm already in enough trouble. I think we'll have to leave it at that. So, Hope you enjoyed that little montage, if you will. Tommy Helms, Jim Maloney, Joe Morgan, Tom Browning. Best of Reds Hall of Fame edition here on the Jim Day podcast. Hey, if you uh, would love to rate and review this podcast, particularly if you're listening on Apple, go on there and five-star rating would be great, folks. If you haven't done it, please do it. It'll help out the future, if there is a future of this podcast. And you know what? I'd like to throw this out there. Would you like to see this podcast continue into the future as we about ready to go into uh, another fall and winter? It'll be off-season before we know it. Um, we've had a lot of guests. We've had a good run. You know, do we go through some guests again? Do I go out and I seek some other guests do i spread our wings and go beyond reds baseball who knows what the future could hold but i don't know leave us a message at jim day tv i'm on twitter and instagram would love to hear from you until next time everyone i am so humbled that you chose us thank you thank you thank you and we'll see you on down the road It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.